Earlier this week, I was in the office and a gentleman stopped by to uh, to uh, get some tuition in, and we started talking about Father's Day, and we talked about what we're doing for Father's Day. I told him that uh, I'm not sure. It probably will involve something good to eat, uh, probably something on the grill. Uh, he talked about how his tradition had always been about baseball. Even when he was a kid, they used to take their dad to a baseball game. And it might not always have been on Father's Day, but around Father's Day. And we just talked about how baseball was such a big part of our upbringing. Um, I played baseball uh, from the time I was a little kid up through high school. Uh, <clears throat> one of my favorite uh, teams of all times were the 70s Oakland A's. We lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, kind of in the North Bay. So we had the opportunity to go down and, and watch the Oakland A's play. Uh, I, my, one of my favorite memories was watching Reggie Jackson hit a grand slam home run on the bottom of the ninth, uh, and they were behind by two runs. He hit the grand slam. and That's a longer story, which I can embellish uh, to, to great extent. So if you're ever curious, just ask me. But... Because I grew up around the Bay Area and the Oakland A's were so close, they were the big team. And uh, every boy seemed they wanted to be Reggie Jackson. Uh, I had a, a guy on my baseball team in Little League named Tommy Harper. And Tommy Harper loved watching Reggie Jackson. He wanted to imitate Reggie Jackson. So every time he got up to bat, you can guess, if, you've, if you're familiar with Reggie Jackson... He would he would take that big swing where where he just and he you know trying to trying to knock it out of the park and he he'd get way down low and of course uh, Reggie Jackson is not only famous for his big hits he's also I think the, was the leader in strikeouts and Tommy ha- Harper was very close to getting to his uh, record I think in Little League and I remember my coach just working on him and working on him and working on him the proper form of batting so that he would actually hit the ball. And he would, he would get up and practice and practice. And finally, he was taking good cuts at the ball, and he was getting hits in practice. And this was a great thing because Tommy was a good catcher. He was a horrible hitter. And so finally, it looked like Tommy had it down. He had it down. He knew how to hit. He was doing great. Uh, our next game comes, and Tommy is up to bat, and guess what he does? He takes that big swing, but he hit it. And the ball pops up super high. The second baseman and the right fielder come in at it, and they're both calling for the ball. They collide. The ball drops. Tommy ended up with an inside-the-park home run on this error between the second baseman and the right fielder. As soon as he gets off the plate, what does the coach do, of course? He starts getting on him for, what are you doing? And he goes, but coach, it worked. Now, total misunderstanding. We all understand Tommy did not do the right thing. Uh, It's not how it should be done. And just because the results were favorable doesn't mean he should have done it. It's kind of like today's uh, story. Uh, Jacob begins a journey of faith. We might even say finally. But the old ways die hard. Let's, uh, let's read our passage uh, from Genesis chapter 30. I'll be reading 25 through 43. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, 
Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For I have had, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pass through your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among, uh, among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen." Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob's pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, so that the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler and the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word that you've given us. We thank you for the example of the lives of the saints that have gone on before us, for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob. Lord, help us to understand your grace and the faithfulness that you have uh, exhibited in the promises you've given to them, but also to us, and help us to respond rightly. Open up our hearts and our minds and our ears to the word you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's go back and look at the big picture here. You remember the story. God had created everything. It was good. Our first parents in Adam and Eve, they sinned, right? So God, when he created everything, it was good. It was blessing, 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 was it not? Be fruitful and increase. Everything was great. Then Adam and Eve, they sin. And what we see is curse. 
Curse, curse, curse. We see Cain killing his brother. We see flood. We see the Tower of Babel. We see all the effects of sin and its curse, curse, curse. Death, hardship, pain. In all of life's uh, sustaining activities, even in giving birth, we see pain and death. But then, in, in chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. Now the story from Abraham forward is the beginning of God's blessing the world through, the, through his covenant people. God makes promises. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So after all this curse, 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 we finally have the beginning of blessing. God makes a promise. It's to Abraham, to his descendants. And we understand that uh, this promise and covenant was to Abraham. It was passed down to Isaac and then to Jacob. And if you recall the context of that, Jacob was one of a pair of twins. God had revealed it to his mother that the younger would serve the older. That Jacob, the younger, would be the heir of the covenant and the promises, not his older brother Esau. And so we can imagine that Jacob has heard the story from the beginning, that he was to have the promises given to Isaac, his father, and to Abraham, his grandfather. It was for him. And you see how throughout the story that that, uh, Pastor Dan has been going through with us, that Jacob tended to rely on himself. He, kept, he tricked uh, Esau out of his birthright. With the help of his mother, he tricked their father Isaac out of the blessing, supposedly helping God to make sure everything happens the way it should be. And remember that it was confirmed to, to uh, Jacob at Bethel in uh, Genesis 28 uh, that Jacob was indeed the heir of the covenant and the promises. But we read also in 22 through 22, uh, 20 through 22, that he didn't quite have it. He says that he acknowledges that God met with him and that God has made promises to him. And yet he says, when he builds his altar, he says, it's only if God will do certain things for him. And only then, when he comes back, only then would God be his God. All this time, he, or then he goes on, he meets Laban, he, and uh, he marries his, uh, his, his two wives after all the service he's done for Laban. And all this time, Jacob doesn't appear to acknowledge God. He doesn't appear to give him thanks or even to seek him. But look what happens now. If you look at verses 25 and 26. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Now, in the Hebrew, these words can be translated in a variety of ways. Most English translations I've looked up, it talks about the aspect of of Jacob just saying, I want to go back to my my, uh, homeland. In fact, many of the translations actually say that, but... The way it looks in Hebrew, it's more like, 
uh, I may go to my own place and my own land. My own place and my own land. The idea here is, is that Isaac, or I mean, uh, Jacob seems to be saying, I need to go back and claim my inheritance. I need to go back and be in my place and my land because that was, that's what was promised. He must have seen in the birth of Joseph, finally, that he has an heir that God has promised. Remember, God's going to, have, uh, to, to bless him. He's going to make many nations. Uh, his first love, his first love, that wife, Rachel, he worked so hard for. He got tricked. He married Leah. And time after time, kids were being born to all these other wives but finally Joseph. So perhaps it was that birth of Joseph that triggered in his mind, maybe, just maybe, these promises that God has made, the stories that he had heard were true. And now he finally has the courage to confront his father-in-law and say, send me back, because now is the time for me to take my place and claim my land. Give me my wives and children that I may go. For you know the service I have given you. So faith has begun. He claims those promises. He believes these promises. The second thing, though, is that there's an acknowledgement of God's blessing, just like God had promised. We read the scripture of God's promise to Abraham. I will bless you. And whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And through you, I'll bless all the nations of the earth. And here Laban says, I have, through divination, uh, found that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Jacob also acknowledges it. You yourself know how I have served you and your livestock, how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. Jacob is acknowledging God's blessing. It has been seen not only from Jacob's experience, but also Laban. Let me just pause now to talk a little bit about this word, divination. We know later on that Laban is an idol worshiper. Um, I don't even know who's going to preach on that, but in a week or two, we're going to hear about uh, the fact that uh, Laban kept around household idols. Divination is a way in which people would seek to find what, the, what future events would hold for them or try to find out what the will of the gods were. Uh, it is something that's, for the most part, expressly condemned throughout Scripture. There were only a couple ways in which God's people were able to, to uh, um, perhaps use divination, and, and these were expressed commands of God. Uh, the high priest, for instance, later on we see this in Deuteronomy. Uh, he was, if people came and, uh, like the king, wanted to know the will of God, the uh, the priest had a way in which of casting a couple stones and and uh, finding out kind of yes or no answers. It was okay to cast lots. God expressly said uh, for the Levites, whoever was serving in the temple, they were supposed to cast lots to find out who was to do it. And that's about it. All other sources of divination were were condemned. Condemned. God's people are not supposed to seek out ways, false ways, of of what God's will is um, through 
whatever the thing might be. And it becomes, as our culture becomes more and more pagan, I notice it more and more that people use it. Divination includes astrology, people looking at their horoscopes, and you yourself might from occasionally go, I'm just going to look at my horoscope just to see what it says, just for kicks, right? But it's surprising how many people do that, thinking, oh, it's just, you know, it's just a game. But they end up making decisions throughout the day based upon what they read. Isn't that true? That's condemned. We're not supposed to do that. I would suggest not even reading it, not even for kicks, because it influences the way you think. Has God used things like astrology and divination to show his will to people? Yes, to pagans, not to his people. You might think of the wise men. They, they read the stars. God revealed to them that Jesus was to be born, right? But what did he give to us? He gave us his word. He gave us scripture. He gave us his Holy Spirit. He gave us his church. So astrology, Ouija boards, you name it. Those things, it's all forbidden. Even lots, casting of lots for decisions. We see that in the New Testament. When the the apostles came together, they knew by Scripture that there should be 12 of them. They picked two people, they drew lots, and they found their apostle. But once the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, guess how many times lots are... uh, uh, used. Zero. Zero. So even the idea of casting lots to make a decision is, is not for us. The Holy Spirit has been given to his church. We have his word. We pray. We, we counsel each other. We ask for advice and for counsel from the elders, from other Christians amongst us. We pray and his spirit leads us. There's no part in divination for us. Here, God used Laban. Perhaps it was to to, uh, uh, help Jacob with his own faith. So Laban, through divination, whatever it might have been, he might have been cutting open livers and reading them or something. It's acknowledged that the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Jacob's God, was blessing Laban because of Jacob. Jacob understood it simply because the promise was given. So faith has come. But that's not it. That's not all. Now my friend Tommy Harper, he wanted to imitate Reggie Jackson. And I was using that as a bad example. Don't do that. Don't try to imitate Reggie Jackson. But what about Abraham? Wouldn't it be a good thing to, to imitate Abraham, the father of our faith? Well, In some ways it is. Steve's shaking his head. No, yeah, all the bad parts don't imitate that, but the good parts. Remember, he went to sacrifice his son Isaac as God had commanded him. He wouldn't withhold even his son, the son he loved. He is a man of faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So here comes Jacob, even imitating imitating Father Abraham. First, we see that he does not want to be made rich by Laban. It kind of reminds us back in Sodom, when, when uh, the Sodom and the, the kingdoms of the plain were captured. Abraham and his trained men went after him. And when he conquered the, the enemy and brought back the captives and all the plunder, 
Sodom, uh, the king of Sodom came out and he, he was going to give him all sorts of riches. And, and Abraham's response was, was no. I, I don't want anyone to say that you made me rich. And you get this sense with Jacob. I don't want anyone to say that Laban made me rich. God is the one that prospered Laban through, his, through Jacob. Jacob wants not to be rich by Laban, but by rich through what God has promised. And we see this again at the end of the passage in 43 when it says, uh, finally, Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. It almost sounds like we'd heard that before. In fact, we heard that very uh, similar. When, when Abraham was in exile in, in Egypt, we have the same thing happens. God blessed Abraham. And when he left Egypt to come home, he was fabulously wealthy. So you have this sense in which Jacob believes the promise. He believes that he has an inheritance and he wants to go back to claim it. We get the sense that he believes that God is the one who has blessed Laban through his work. And for the sake of Jacob, because of the promise, he believes it. And we see him wanting to be like his, the father of faith, Abraham. Not wanting to be rich by Laban, but by what God has promised. And that's a wonderful thing. So they make a deal. They make a deal. The deal is found in verses 31 through 36. What shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you do this uh, for me, I will again pass to your flock and keep it. Let me pass through your flock today, removing every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and the speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come and look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled or spotted among the goats and black are among the lambs. If found with me, shall be counted stolen. And Laban thought this was a great idea. Well, why did he think it was a great idea? Well, in, in their day, sheep were white and the goats were dark. They were black. And, and, they, were, and, and they were signs of your wealth. Spotted and speckled sheep or spotted and speckled goats were counted less, they were less than perfect. So why not get rid of these things? They, they don't, and you don't want the spotted and speckled one mating with your good ones, right? Otherwise, they might have spotted and speckled sheep and goats, and then your, your flock would be worth less. So Laban thought it was a great idea. Plus, the percentage in your flock that are spotted and speckled was small. So Laban thought this was a great opportunity. It was a great opportunity to separate out these, these sheep. He can give them, basically, he's giving Jacob the rejects of his flock. And plus, he knows, Laban knows, that Jacob has been blessing him all this time. Why not have him work for me more? And I'm going to get even more rich. This is a great idea. So Laban's, yes, we'll do that. And remember, Jacob says, you know how I've served you. I've served you. Let me just point this out, that the language that Jacob has been using all this time has been the language of slavery. I've slaved for you. 
You know, for 14 years he has worked and Laban has become wealthy because of Jacob's slavery, because of his serving Jacob or Laban. And part of what Jacob is doing here is finding out whether Laban's going to treat him, continue to treat him like a slave or like a son, a son-in-law. And Laban says yes to the deal, but then look what happens. Instead of understanding the honesty and hard work of Jacob and trusting him to do what's right, like a son-in-law would, what does Laban do? Continues to treat him like a slave. Jacob's deal says that he would pass through and, and remove all these things. That very day, Laban goes off and he removes personally all the spotted and speckled. And not only that, he didn't just remove them and set them over here for, for Jacob. He sent them three days away and had his own sons take care of Jacob's, where Jacob would take care of his. Now that they're three days away, Laban is feeling pretty good that they're not going to crossbreed. Jacob's not going to be able to trick him. <clears throat> Jacob's not going to be able to trick him. Laban's sons, who aren't nearly as good of shepherds as Jacob, are going to, are going to take care of Jacob's. Jacob is going to take care of Laban's flock. So Laban takes the deal and, and treats him like a slave. He tricks him once again into more service. Just so we remember, he's already been slaving for 14 years. We find out that Jacob's going to slave again for another six. So they set off. Laban tries to trick uh, Jacob. Jacob now begins to trick Laban. Continuing on, it says that Jacob takes these fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees, peels these white streaks on them. He exposes the, the whites of the stick, sets the sticks that he peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs that is in the watering places where the flocks come to drink. And since they breed when they come to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. So the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted things. Of course they did, right? Um, by the way, thank you for having me preach on this passage. Evidently, it was kind of a known thing that if uh, sheep or goats were to breed in front of striped or speckled things, that it would affect the birth and they would have striped or speckled uh, offspring. Right? We'll just move on. No, I'm just kidding. It, 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 was a, it was evidently uh, the belief. And if I took my white sheep and faced them towards those black goats over there, there would be, then of course, they're going to have some sort of blackness in their lambs. And if I took the black goats and pointed them to the white sheep, there's a possibility they'd have then white speckled things, right? That's, now that's what Jacob believed. Does it really work? No, right? We know that that's really kind of odd. And, and here Jacob is, 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 is working diligently 
to increase his flock and to diminish Laban's flock. Because not only does he, he doesn't do this with all the sheep and goats, only with the strongest. The strongest, healthiest goats come up. He wants to make them speckled or spotted. The weak ones, ah, we'll, we'll make them plain. And so he doesn't do this, this technique with them. In Jacob's mind, what's he doing? He's making God's blessing become a reality through his own efforts. Is he not? Is he not? So let me talk first of all what Jacob is doing right, and then I want to talk a little bit more about what he's doing wrong. The first thing we, we need to understand is that the, some of the things that Jacob does that he does right is this. Number one, for all those years that he served under Laban, who is really a jerk, let's be honest, Laban's a jerk. We find out later, and I don't want to get into Chris's passage, I believe you're preaching next week. I'll let you explain what a jerk Laban is. He's a jerk. But Jacob worked hard and was diligent in making sure that his flock under his care prospered, and it did. And he also, second thing, was that he gave credit to God. He acknowledged it was God's blessing that made it happen. John Calvin talks about work in this way from this very passage. He says that as we serve, as we serve, as we work at whatever profession we're called to labor, we're to do it as to the Lord. We're to do it as to the Lord. God calls us to work hard because we work for Him. Not ultimately, ultimately for our employer. And God calls us to credit Him for any prosperity that we might receive from that work. Now, here's the quote from Calvin. The use of this passage in teaching the doctrine of work is twofold. First, whatever I attempt or whatever work I apply my hands, it is the duty to desire God to bless my labor and that it might, may not be vain and fruitless. Now, that sounds like a no-brainer, right? That whatever we put our hand to, whatever work we do, we want to desire that God would bless it and that it would not be in vain, it would not be fruitless. But let me ask you this. How many times have you been working for a jerk when you really didn't care if your labor was fruitful? How many times have you worked and you didn't want to? And you, and you did a, a half a job just to get by? Your desire wasn't really for that work to prosper. Your desire wasn't for it to be fruitful for your, for your employer or even for yourself. You just wanted it to be done. Isn't that true? I recall one time after I, I stepped out of uh, ministry and eking out a living, one of the things that, that helped us get by was having a paper route. And actually, for a while, I had two. Actually, I had three for like two weeks. I hated that. If you ever want to work at a thankless job where your employer doesn't give a rip about you, be a paper carrier. It's true. And one day, when it was storming and it was pouring down rain on me, 
I was having a pity party. I remember just thinking, this is, this is stupid. I just want to get done. I just, I just had this idea that I was going to take my little papers that are all nicely put into my plastic bags. I'm just going to run down the street and just toss them. And I don't care where they're, they're, they go because I just want to get out of here. And, and in reality, part of me was it was my ego thinking, I deserve better than this. Right? I deserve better than this, so I'm just going to get through this, and you know what? I don't care. It's just the paper. It's just, you know, in the Press Gazette, you know, look at all the times they've really messed me over. Think of all the time they've wasted. I'm just going to... And then it hit me. Well, God hit me. What are you doing? This job was really a gift from God. And it was. It was a gift from God, and I needed to be working not for the Press Gazette, not even for my customers, but for the Lord. And I remember there in that rainstorm deciding, this, I, I really need to do my best. D- despite the fact that I don't get paid much, and despite the fa- all this other stuff, and I'm freezing and it's just pouring down rain, I want to make sure that I get these papers on everyone's porches and that their papers are dry, and I'm going to do my best. I remember making that resolution, and guess what happened? It was hard, and I got wet, and it was horrible. Are you waiting for more than that? Sometimes that's all there is. It is. It's hard, and it's horrible. Look at Jacob. I mean, think of the difference between Jacob and I. It was just one morning for me. Jacob worked for all that time. And he was consistently working hard and diligent, and, and prosperity came. And I, the only lesson I got out of it was this, is I acknowledged that that job was a gift from the Lord, and I just needed to do what was best. Why? Not because I was going to get anything out of it, because I owe it to the Lord. I owe it to the Lord to work diligently and to seek my labor to be blessed by him and that it's fruitful. And guess what fruitfulness meant in that particular situation? My customers got dry papers. My customers got dry papers. For Laban, or for Jacob, fruitfulness meant Laban became wealthy. Isn't that great? And that's what God calls you guys to do. All of us. To desire, first of all, that God would bless my labor and that it would not be in vain, nor would it be fruitless, despite who you're working for, despite what the job is, as long as it's a lawful occupation, despite how you feel about it, despite how you like your manager. You're working unto the Lord. And often that's very difficult. And I know some of you, even now, job situation's not great. But God calls us to labor as if laboring for the Lord. Kids, that includes working for your parents. My kids are over there, so I'm looking at it. 
to work as you're working for the Lord and that you desire that it become prosperous. The second thing Calvin says is that if you've obtained anything, the second duty is to ascribe praise to God, without whose blessing men in vain rise up early, fatigue themselves the whole day, take late rest, eat the bread of carefulness, and taste water with their sorrow. You got that? If God doesn't bless us in our work, we're getting up early, fatiguing ourselves, taking late rest, and eating our bread of carefulness, and we taste water with our sorrow. But when God does bless us, and our, our labor is not in vain, and we're giving all praise to Him for that fruitfulness, we're not having water with sorrow. We're eating and drinking with joy because it's a gift from God and we acknowledge it so. All right, that's all I'm going to say because Chris will have more next week, I think. I should have checked with you, but I'm pretty sure you will. Now, what did Jacob do wrong? What did Jacob do wrong? Well, he acknowledged that God was blessing him He acknowledged that Laban was getting wealthy through his effort. He knows, too, that the promise of God was that he would bless Jacob, too. In fact, Chris will even mention that he has a dream that says that he's going to to get wealthy. But what Jacob did was that he thought it was being done by his own trickery. Old ways die hard. All of Jacob's life, he has been doing things through trickery. Tricking his brother Esau, tricking his father uh, Isaac. And now he thinks that he is getting rich by tricking Laban. When in reality, it is God who has made the promise and God who is faithful. God who is faithful. We know that just because you put sticks in front of sheep, they're not going to have to be speckled. It was God doing it. It was God's blessing. In other words, God blessed Jacob despite Jacob's effort. Despite it. Jacob should have continued to trust in the Lord and that he would continue to bless him and to bless Laban. Instead, he thought by his own work, by his own power, he would receive these blessings. My conclusion or my third point is simply this. Our story is just like Jacob's. It is. How often, how often do we think that God's blessings depend upon what we do? How often is it that we acknowledge that God is sovereign in all things? How often do we acknowledge that God loves us, that God has a plan for us, and we say yes, yes, yes to all these things right up here, right? But do we really believe it? Do we really believe it? How often do we slip into old ways and think that we have to somehow do things, I guess, to help out God, to prompt Him along, to speed Him up? I can't tell you how often I have heard as a pastor people who have come to me and said, I don't get it, you know, 
I did this, this, and this, and yet God's not blessing, you know, God's not, you know, blessing me. As if it's, God's like this big slot machine. If we put the right amount of quarters in and, and pull the lever, then out's going to come the blessing that I guess we think we deserve. In other words, we sometimes slip into this thing that even our faithfulness to God is simply a way to manipulate Him to get what we want. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Our faithfulness, that w- the things that we do in faith, is not so that God will somehow look on us and decide they're going, He's going to shower His blessings on us because we've earned it. Right? God has made promise to us and He's going to fulfill those promises because He is faithful. Not because of what we have done, but because of what He has promised. God is the one who's faithful in all things. And we try to manipulate Him. You know, I'll do this good work and this good work and somehow earn brownie points or merits before God and then He'll be obliged then to answer my prayer. It doesn't work that way. It never has. We sometimes think that about our own salvation. We think that about our own salvation sometimes. That, you know, it, it, we just have to be good enough for God to accept us and count us worthy of, of, being a, of going to heaven or, or being one of His. It doesn't work like that either. It doesn't work like that. God, God has chosen you. And he's called you to himself. And he's given you a purpose and a plan. And because he's given you a purpose and a plan, he's called you to himself. And he has a destiny for you. That you'll be conformed to the image of his son. And the promise we have from Romans 8.28 is then that good will come. Good will come. We know that in all things, all things, I should, I'm going to read it so I don't mess it up in the ESV. This is one of the problems when you grew up memorizing the King James and your church switched to the NIV. And now we're in the, in the uh, ESV. From Romans, starting with verses 8-28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And sometimes we read that verse and we think, well, I just need to love God more, and then more good will come. As if it's up to us, and our quality of love, or our quantity of love, or something like that, it's up to us for that good to come. But listen, he continues on, he says, For those who foreknew, He also predestined, to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Let me go back to this. Because He foreknew. It means that He knew you even before you were born. He predestined you. He gave you a destiny before you were even born. Before you had a chance to do anything good, God has already has a, loves you and has a plan for you. You don't have to earn it. He's already set it up. And he says, those who he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and to those whom he justified, he also 
glorified. It's God's work. God's choice. God's grace. God's call. God did the justifying. God has done everything He simply wants from us. Thanks, love, faith. Not to manipulate Him. Not to get the things we want. But simply because we're now in this relationship with a God who has loved us and called us to himself. A God who has supplied all our needs even before we knew we need them. A God who loves us even before we loved him. A God who, when you were a sinner, sent his son to die. But I know old ways die hard. Old ways die hard. Jacob was so used to trickery. And we get so used to our sin. Jacob probably relied on that trickery because he was so good at it and it seemed to work all his life. I think the sins that we hold on to are the things that seem to have worked. And that's probably why we go back to them time and time again. Whether it be flattery, whether it be doing good things to try to earn God's merit, whatever it is, we need to give those to the Lord and abandon them. And just trust and rest in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, sometimes it's easy for us, a few thousand years away from Jacob's life, and think of the ridiculousness of what he's done. And yet, God, upon closer examination, we're a lot more like Jacob than we care to... uh, admit. Father, help us to die to our old self and to our old ways. Help us, Lord, simply to rely on your grace, just to trust in you, that our righteousness is not our own, it's yours. Help us, God, to be faithful and to live a life pleasing to you. Help us to work diligently in the things that you've called us to do. Not for for our own reward, Lord, but for your glory. Because we work unto you. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.